Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig big leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So is anyone else ready for some sunshine? <laughs> I, Brenda this morning said, You're, you've been studying Genesis, right? Like God did make the sun. I was like, yeah, yeah, like, he actually did. Um, but as you flip to Genesis 3, hopefully you're already flipping there, um, I want to tell you about a new skill that I learned um, yesterday. Um, you're going to be super jealous. I, I, I learned that I can both work on a sermon and play peekaboo at the same time. It was a, it's just this thing that I've realized. I think I, I got a picture, I think. Oh, goodbye. This was my view for a while yesterday. As I was working on a sermon, got a baby being fussy, so I'm like going, going back and forth between holding him, putting him back down, getting fussy, picking him back up. And I was like, hey, I can do both at the same time. Um, so I just want to brag a little bit. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Um, but a new, a new skill that I learned. Super productive first 30 seconds of the sermon. here. Um, but until yesterday... We were, I was planning to go all through Genesis 3. We were going to look verses 1 all the way through the end of the chapter. And it was just really, I felt like God is like really saying, slow down, slow down. You're really trying to skim through this too fast. We're going to be here for three hours if we want to truly just dig into it. So we're just going to do these first seven verses this week. And uh, we're going to finish chapter 3 um, next week. So for those of you that have not been here, we started a walk through Genesis um, back two weeks ago. Um, so we went through Genesis 1 during the first week. We went through Genesis 2 during um, last week. And then this week we were picking up in, in Genesis 3, chapter 1. And the, a big thing that we're trying to say is that this is one continual story. This is not just a, a, these break-apart break stories. This is not just, okay, God created. End of story 1. God created man, story 2. This interaction between man, woman, and the serpent, story 3. This is not just these individual stories, but it's one continual story. And we said that over and over. And I want to say, for those of you that were here last week, this, this is going to be very similar to last week. This is the sermon. As I, as I was getting into these seven verses and looking, it's going to be a really hammering home the exact same point that I did over and over and over again 
last week. Because last week, what we did is we looked at the provision of God in chapter 2. We looked at that God had provided them every tree to eat. He provided man and woman food. He provided the land to live in. He provided the ability to work as they imaged their creator. For man, he provided a spouse and that, that complete relationship. We see that God pr- provided over and over and over again. But Genesis 3 is often seen as the chapter when all things go wrong, when God's plan just goes spiraling out of control. There's absolutely a tragic part of this that has implications for us that that is from this point forward. Absolutely. But what I want to say is that Genesis 3 is not a picture of God being fooled. It's not a picture of God's beautiful plan being ruined. I want to do my best to show you that this is not the case over the next two weeks. We're going to look at this interaction between the woman and the serpent. And I I want us to read this in light of the words we heard last week, in light of this abundance of provision that we saw God giving his people the way we saw Adam and Eve being provided for. I want us to continue to be in that mindset, in the abundance of God's provision. And something I said last week was that we get so caught up on the negative. We get so caught up on the fact that God said, there's that one tree that you can't eat. We get so caught there that we miss it. He said, I've given you every other tree to eat. It's the abundance of the provision there. We miss that. And as we look at this conversation. It's going to be that, that same thing. Look at what God has not given you. We're going to see that, that that's how sin so deeply tempts. So, I hadn't really planned on talking about this until this morning, um, but I think it's helpful to point out that just the reality of Satan, just the reality of the evil one. This is not some mystical thing that we picture with red horns and the pitchfork that the reality of Satan, the reality of evil, the reality of him, it's real. And I I think that we so quickly neglect this, that all through Scripture we see him described as a liar, a deceiver, a thief, destroyer. Over and over and over again, the reality of the one that is against the things of God. And I think that we're foolish if we neglect this. If we imagine that the, just the, the red horns and the pitchfork that people might dress up for at Halloween. Like if, if that is our picture, we are very mistaken. He's real. And he's out to lie, deceive, steal, destroy, oppose God. And notice the first question. Notice this is, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's a subtle question, um, but one that we saw last week that God had said, You may eat of any tree except that one. You may, that's the provision that he has given. And Eve's response is pretty on point. I mean, what, what she says, she says, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
So it's just a question to start out with. Just a question. He says, did God actually say? Did God actually say that? It's just a, just a question. But then his response to Eve's response is just a flat-out lie. You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He lies. And let me just finish off this section real quick again. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What we see is this first rejection of the provision of God. Rejection of the provision of God. Like, they had been told of God's provision. They had experienced God's provision. And yet here they were rejecting it, saying, it's not enough. And that's like, in, in a basic definition of, of sin, it's rejecting the provision as God, of God as enough. It's saying that, no, you've given, but I want more. I want something else. What you've provided is not enough. It's rejecting God's provision. Notice this is the first thing the serpent calls into question here is, did God really say? And he he leaves this this backwards question to call into question this faithfulness of God or the provision of God. His, His trustworthiness in saying, he already said what he was providing. It's like that candy or, or, or soup that we talked about last week. It's like, he's saying, like, no, no, what you want is, is the one that God said you can't have. That's the one you want because God has not given you enough. He says, God is withholding from you something good. And it's that tree right there. It's the same thing we talked about last week. In Satan, in the form of the serpent here, we see he's focusing on the negative and not the abundance of the provision of God. It's the same thing we talked about last week that God has said, I'm providing all of this for you. Providing you with everything. Food, land, the ability to image your creator in the way that you work. A spouse. But sin is is the opposite of this. It's the opposite of seeing the provision of God. It's rejecting the provision of God. It's going after something else, something that we would say is better. And something, another way that I think that this often plays out is that we take a good desire that's given by God and yet we twist the ways that we seek to fulfill those desires. Good desires given by God and yet we twist the ways that we seek to fulfill them. We talked about work last week. That God has designed us to work, to image Him in the way that we work. That work is good. It's not... It's not evil. It's not broken. It's, it's broken now, but the design for work is good. But, but we as mankind can take that and make work an idol and give our lives to our work 
in a way that God has not designed. What about sex? Good desire given by God to be fulfilled within marriage. Good desire given by God to be expressed within marriage. But we seek to fulfill it outside of that. Mankind, sinful, seeks to, seeks to satisfy desires outside of the ways that God has designed it. We can talk about all sorts of things. We take good desires and seek to fulfill them outside of the ways that God has designed. Different examples. Same common ground. Like God has given us desires to be that, that we desire to be to fulfill them. I, I, my Bible reading plan has me in Ecclesiastes, and I was just thinking of different parts of this that it's like God has put eternity in the heart of man. That we, we long for something more. We long to be fulfilled. We long for more. We have that desire to be satisfied. But we so often miss that those desires are only satisfied by God. And we see in Genesis 3 that mankind, woman, man, rejects this provision, rejects desires that are only to be fulfilled by God and seeks to fulfill them elsewhere. What about the ways that we say, like, man, God, what you've given me, you gave me the wrong thing. You gave me the wrong job. You gave me the wrong parents. You gave me the wrong spouse. You gave me the wrong spiritual gift. We... I know better. I know myself better. And we think that God has given us something wrong. You see, everything the serpent says there is calling into question the provision of God. Did God really say, you will not die in any lies? It's, again, it sounds very familiar to last week, but how have we seen this play out in our own lives? The ways that we want, we focus so much on what we have not been given or we think that God is withholding from us that we don't see the abundant ways he's provided. Because as, as we look at, this, at these seven verses, what we see is that that is exactly the scheme of Satan. Mind off of what God has provided to want what he has not. To look away from the good and perfect provision of God. Because if our hearts, our thoughts, our minds are consistently dwelling upon the things which, the things that we do not have, like, should we be surprised when that's what we end up chasing? When that's what we spend our time, our money, our energy on? Like, if that's what we're consistently dwelling upon, why is it surprising when that's what we chase? Have you, have you found yourself like letting this slowly creep in, or maybe it just pounced? The slowly creep in of God, a feeling like God is not giving you enough, not giving you what you want. 
Maybe it's slowly creeped in that you need something more, that you need fulfillment elsewhere, that you need fulfillment through another way. Maybe it's your finances, your marriage, your career. Like, it's easy to throw out those things. But in what ways are you prone to doubt God's provision, to seek it, to seek fulfillment elsewhere? Because I think that we see that question all the time. Did God really say? Did God really say? We talked last week about the value of life. Did God really say that human life is to be valued as made in his image? Did God really say that? Wouldn't it be easier if we didn't value life? Wouldn't an abortion be easier than choosing life? Wouldn't not valuing every person as made in the image of God, wouldn't that be easier? Did God really say? Did God really say that he would provide for you? Did God really say that you are more important than the flowers? Did God really say that? I mean, I think we hear this in various ways every day. Are God's ways really the best? Did God really say that? I just want to say that Satan's schemes, what we see, they've not changed. They've not changed from what we see here in Genesis 3. It's all centered around rejecting the provision of God. If you have, if you have your Bible, flip to Matthew 4 for a second. Matthew 4 in the New Testament. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. As I look around, there are very few people actually here on February 14th, 2016, when I preached for the very first time in this passage right here, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I went back and looked through my notes this week, and I was like, oh my goodness. Um, last week, I told you to go back and listen to a past sermon. I'm not going to do that this week. <laughs> just, just know that. Um, but February 14th, 2016, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. What we see here is Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And I just want to show you a couple of these things to show you that his tactics have not changed. Look at the first thing Satan says. He says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I'm not going to get into a full teaching on fasting or anything, but like as we fast... It's like it's a demonstration of our reliance upon God, that we need nothing else, that He meets our needs. It's like it's this temporary setting aside of usually food, but uh, setting aside of worldly things and, and focusing on God. I mean, obviously, that doesn't make, mean that it gets rid of earthly hunger. And it says Jesus was hungry. But what does Satan say? He says, reject that God is enough. Turn these Stones into loaves of bread. Re reject that God is enough. Reject that he will provide. His tactics have not changed. Look down at verse 8. This is his third temptation. He says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
begin. Look elsewhere. Don't look just to God. Look elsewhere. Look elsewhere for provision. Look elsewhere for fulfillment. Satan, his schemes in Genesis 3 and Matthew 4, they've not changed. Look elsewhere for your provision. It's no different. It's no different for you and me. Do you find yourself consistently drawn to the world, to what it has to offer us? I see it all the time in my own life. Do you consistently see the world and feel, and feel drawn to it? Like this is not a new tactic. Unless we see that God's provision is enough, we are never going to be satisfied. Never. To Adam and Eve, God had provided everything. God had provided everything they would need. He said, land, food, relationships, walking with him in the garden. But they reject this abundant provision because they want more. They chase something that was not satisfying. As I had mentioned earlier, I happened to be in Ecclesiastes the last couple of days. And let me read. This is in Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 14. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 14. These words of Solomon. He says, I have seen everything that is, under, that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon says that the pursuit of knowledge that Adam and Eve both chose, that when the knowledge is but striving after the wind. You can chase the wind. You cannot catch the wind. Chasing after that which we cannot catch. And what we see, Genesis 3, and as we look at it today, like we can spend our whole lives pursuing worthless things. Money, pursuit of success, pursuit of fame, pursuit of the perfect picture-perfect family, pursuit of the perfect job, pursuit of having a better car, a better house, the best relationship, the list goes on and on. But we're so prone to chase that which will never satisfy, that cannot satisfy. Like, they cannot satisfy because they were not designed to satisfy. We'll never have enough money. We'll never have enough fame. We'll never have the nicest car, the nicest house, 
the picture-perfect relationship, the picture-perfect family. You'll never catch it. But going back to what I just said, unless we see God's provision as being enough, unless we see his provision as being enough, we will never truly be satisfied. This pursuit of that, that pursuit of the things that Solomon describes as chasing the wind, has described each one of us. It's described every person who has walked this earth. Like I see this in my own life every single day. I, I see it in what my eyes are drawn to. I see, it, I see it in what I think about. I see it in the ways that I speak. I see it in the ways that I'm very quick to speak but slow to listen. I see it as I consistently think that the world is revolving around me. I reject that God is enough, that God has provided We're never going to be satisfied until our satisfaction is found in God. We're never going to be satisfied. And God, in Genesis 3, this is not where God stops providing. It wasn't Genesis 1, 2, God provided, and then Genesis 3 stops. We're going to talk about this a lot next week. But God, provider God, did not stop here. God did not stop providing we live in a Genesis 3 world, which we're going to look at a lot next week. The, the stains of sin, the reality of sin in a broken world. Absolutely. That's what we live in. But we don't live without God providing. We don't live without hope because he provided Christ. It's, the Word of God says that even though that described us, even though we pursued the world, even though we pursued our satisfaction, our provision, outside of, how, of, of what God had declared, as we did that, even then, God sent his son to die the death that we deserved, but that he conquered death. It says that for those that trusted him, when God, he's, we have the righteousness of Christ. That we have a hope. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. It's not until we fully grasp this, fully feel this, fully know this, that we can know full satisfaction because we're no longer identified by all those other pursuits. The car we have or don't have, the house we have or don't have, the relationship we have or don't have, the job we have or don't have, the status or position that we have or don't have, no longer matters because we're identified with Jesus. We've been adopted as a son or a daughter. Like in spite of our sin, in spite the Genesis 3, like that describes us all. We've chosen not the provision of God, but the world. that God has abundantly provided. Abundantly provided. And he's done so in Jesus. We spent a lot of time in Ephesians recently. And I invite you to turn to Ephesians 2. Um, not verse 1, which we all should have memorized. 
I'm going to look at verse 11. And Paul is, Paul's been saying, like, this is the reality of your situation. This is that you were dead in your trespasses. You were following this world. That's the reality. That's who you were. But then look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. <laughs> Ephesians is just repeating the same message over and over and over again. This is who you were, but you've been provided for in Christ. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love of which he loved us, even when you were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Even though you once rejected the perfect provision of God, even though you once chased what does not satisfy in this world, even then he is provided. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Church. CRC, Christ Reconciled Church. What, what are you trusting in? What provision are you trusting in? I'm not asking what words you said 30 years ago or two years ago or a month ago. I'm not asking what your parents, what they're trusting in. I'm not asking what your spouse is trusting in. What provision are you trusting in? Is it that that does not satisfy? Or is it Jesus, full provision of God? What provision are you clinging to? Is it worldly that will pass away? The wind that you'll never catch? Because if it's the world, you're never going to catch it. You're never going to catch it. Never going to catch it. Look at Jesus. Full provision of God. In spite of who we are, in spite of our rejection of his provision, we've got Jesus. As we stand and sing here in just a couple minutes, Think about the opportunity that we have as we, as we sing, as we gather as the church. Just this declaration of Jesus. It's all Jesus. Provision in Jesus. We get to sing about the second chances that we've been given over and over and over again. It's Jesus. But what provision are you clinging to?
Because I think that if we fully understand the perfect provision of Christ, it changes everything. His cross changes everything. It's amazing how those songs fit so perfectly. Because I think it will change our lives as individuals. Because if we understand that Jesus is full, full provision, that we need nothing else, then everything we might hold in this world doesn't matter. Those worldly riches that we can be tempted to chase, they don't matter. If we understand that Jesus provided all that we need, we're going to share the gospel more boldly. We're going to give sacrificially. It's going to draw us in a deeper community with one another. Because we've all got that in common. Our need for Jesus. Look at the abundance of God's provision in Christ. More valuable than anything that this world could offer. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. We can reject that offer. We can reject what the world has to say only through Christ. Only through Christ. Let's pray.